0: Welcome to VarmBlog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you Prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, you who subscribe here, for you will learn and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's today's episode. Hello and welcome to VARBlog, blog. And today we're with Alex Prahasa, um <laughs> who is probably the the sole membership of my Austrian fan base. Um, Yay! <laughs> uh, I, uh, before we get into um, anything, I I've been to Austria um, when I lived in München um, during a year of my undergrad education. <sighs> This is before the, the the euro was even a thing yet, so that's going to date. It's exactly the year before the the euro currency came out. It dates me. I
1: vaguely remember <laughs> that, very vaguely. <laughs> My mind um, is still um, rec- um calculating in schilling.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I do remember having to figure out shillings versus Deutschmarks versus. We also spent time uh in in Greece versus like. Drachmas and uh, I, I, all I really remember is things were a lot cheaper for an American then than they were just a year later. Um, however, um, I became aware of you because you wrote uh, an article really parsing out some of the ideas that came up in discussion between me and uh, Cuba. <sighs> Was now s- I think um, you would think I'd be, you'd be think you'd think I'd learn how to pronounce Polish names by now, um, uh, and Kuba and I were talking about the situation in Europe, and that's not what we're going to talk about today, um, but but we began discussing uh, actually, you know, um, you started sending me uh, articles, I started
1: spamming you,
0: yeah, yeah, which which I did kind of cursory go through um, on category theory and Marx issues of math and uh, dealing with Hegel and mathematical categories and, uh, you know, weird math mysticism and my sort of skepticism about the modern state of, of math theory, but also realizing that in so much that Marxists were playing with math, they were generally playing with it from either the 19th century or through French weird misappropriations of set theory that were also already out of date. Um,
1: yeah. So, um, A problem with math in general and with the intersection of math and other sciences, particularly social sciences and stuff, um, is that math has just grown exponentially over the last century. I think it was maybe the fastest growing science of all. Um, I don't know what would rival it. So mathematics of today, like current research level mathematics, only has like a superficial similarity or, or maybe it would be more fair to say it is very, very different on the surface, but some of the essential ideas have carried over, but it, uh, it has expanded in a way that makes it impossible. Like it's often said that David Hilbert, David Hilbert, um, I'm automatically saying the names in English, if, my, if they're German, um, he, that he was the last person in mathematics who had a general overview of all of the areas of mathematics. And that was in the 1930s. And since then, so much has happened that no person could ever keep track of it. Even some of the greatest minds of um, mathematics of all time have been born after that. Um, and But they were all already kind of specialists, at least in some way. Uh, of course, this is a real problem if you're trying to um, get into math from another science. Um, and it's even a problem if you're trying to get into another area of mathematics um, from one where you're um, already um, proficient in. But I think we really have to try to further this, interse- to, to further the connections between um, mathematics and um, in particular um, economics um, as Marxists, you know, um, in order to like, to just get a better understanding of what is happening in economics because each time I'm starting to look at um, an economical system or something and I'm just starting to seriously think about it, uh, my first reaction is always like, how can you say anything about it? It's way too complicated. It's way too complex. Um, it's like several orders of complexity uh, beyond something that has been attempted by um, theoretical mathematicians and still a few orders that are beyond that which is normal in applied mathematics. Um but I really think that if you're trying to like build up a socialist system or something, we really need to have a good understanding of um, economics. And for that, we will need mathematics. And in particular, because um, you said in another podcast of yours that you kind of want to do theory again, I'm paraphrasing you, um, but with um, like cybernetics and probability theory, which is, of course, a good start. But um, as I'm, I was telling you, you really need category theory. And at that that point in time, I was not particularly clear about what you need category theory for, but it has been a common theme in pure mathematics and more recently in applied mathematics that category theory starts appearing pretty much everywhere. And at this point in time, I have a much better idea um, for some of the potential applications of category theory in economics. Uh, But yeah, we just, um, we need to build on that, you know?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that you and I have talked about, um, we were talking about it even before we started recording today was that in so much that socialist Marxist, you know um, thinkers in general, uh, we have a weird penchant for hanging on to the early 20th century Um like when we talk about psychology, we're still talking about Freud and and maybe Lacan and and maybe frankly literary and psych and and uh, philosophical uses of uh, of Freud and Lacan, but not actually uh, more recent um, psychiatric research. All of which, with the caveat, like I know that there's a crisis of replication. I know that there's a lot of bad math in uh, in in um psychological research right now and and but that started getting me thinking well if if we don't understand that then we obviously probably haven't touched math in a while i mean um when you ask someone to deal with the problems of marx and engel's attempts at science and math uh the, you know the issues with the dialectics of nature uh, from Engels side or are Marx's mathematical notebooks usually people don't even have a basic understanding of math enough to see why they're wrong they you know or what's the problem with them are it will be just uh written off as without well, something Marx did uh they don't really work i don't really know why it doesn't work um and uh, somebody who knew something better once told me that maybe he was trying to invent calculus, um, <laughs> which, which is interesting because, uh, you, you know, um, and, and we'll come, we will come back to category theory, but I think this is related. Um, Marx was trying to work on something cutting edge in math because of a lack of understanding at the time. Um, well, I, he, um,
1: if we can, okay. Um, he also didn't know um, like the cutting cutting edge of uh, mathematical research um, of the day, and so um, he was trying to kind of reinvent something that other people were also working on. Uh, and I think if he had known about the other attempts, um, he might have done it a little bit differently. But what he did was actually um, interesting and has been um, furnished into something useful by Laver. Um I'm sure we'll come back to that. Um, But yeah, he was was trying to reinvent calculus, um, which is an old problem um, that mathematics um, or mathematicians have always kind of felt uncomfortable with, because um, the early inventors of um, calculus, they all used infinitesimals. um, And the exact nature of infinitesimals was never really very clear. And... He, um, actually, um, the stuff um, Hegel talked about in Science of Logic has been made by Lavier into um, a kind of um, into something that can handle infinitesimals. Um, but at that point in time, um, when Marx um, was writing his mathematical um, um, thesis, uh, infinitesimals were very much looked at with suspicion, and people were trying to replace them. And Marx was among those people. He also threw out infinitesimals. Um, Unrightfully so, in my opinion, but um, yeah, again, what he, what he was trying to do was kind of not completely correct from a mathematical perspective, but it was also a failure from an interesting um, perspective and kind of the tools to make the thing precise that he was trying to do were just not available at the time. Like that's um, like, that's a hundred years later um, before you can do something like that. So
0: before we get into uh, category theory, I mean, I I think, for example, my audience um, probably doesn't understand what infinitesimals are uh, and why there's been such a controversy around them for the last 150 question mark years. It's been a long time.
1: More, way more. It goes back to the Greeks, really. Um, They were kind of um, uncomfortable with infinitesimals. Others um, actually really liked them. So it's been a long, long controversy. I've actually been reading through that um, over the last few days. Uh, And yeah, infinitesimals should be numbers that are um, smaller than any, not just any natural number, but any real number um, under what we understand as real numbers. And the the exact problem with that is, well, people have always looked at um, new mathematical constructions with suspicion. They didn't like negative numbers when they were introduced. They didn't like the complex numbers when they were introduced. Thus we have um, the term imaginary number, which kind of denotes something that um, apparently isn't as real as real numbers, but really the battle is already lost with real numbers. They are already pretty weird. Um, And so of course with infinitesimals, it was the same thing. People um, were kind of suspicious about them. They were suspicious of their ontological status because they were kind of weirder than normal natural numbers. And there is this kind of sentiment that has been best formulated by, um, Leonhard Kronecker, the mathematician who said that, um, God created the natural numbers. Everything else is the work of man. And yeah, well, well, it, it has what, a kind of logic to it. Yeah. To,
0: to pick up on that for a second, when, when we talk about like the natural or real existence of mathematics, of mathematics as a, uh, you know, um, the, that's one of the things I point out, too, because I'm like, yeah, in the world you can see things that are corollary directly to real numbers, but when we start getting into concepts like negative numbers or comp- uh, complex and imaginary numbers are um, inf- uh infinitesimals or multiple infinities, um, you don't see that, and there's no natural correlate to it.
1: Um, well, it's complicated because <laughs> if you really want to look at our natural world, like you can, <laughs> Go ahead. yeah, um, you can basically you can say that everything we see around us is um, in terms of magnitudes of the Planck length. So, really, reality looks very continuous, but it's actually if you look at it very closely, then it's actually discrete. So. You could throw out um you can definitely throw out real numbers like there are no there is no real quantity that corresponds to um like um, like pi or something like some irrational number that um, that isn't um, an amount you see in the natural world um, but you could also throw out really um well i I guess you can't do without the rationals but you, you can definitely throw out real numbers. But on the other hand, um, real numbers appear in natural laws as sometimes conversion rates between like particles or something. Um, So a particle might change with the probability of a real number that is not a rational number and not even a computable number, which is very interesting from a computability perspective. Um, And like engineers need to use complex numbers. So it's kind of like... Well, you can break down everything to natural numbers or at least rationals. But at the same time, if you do that, then um, all of the elegant descriptions that we have of nature and even of like engineering and stuff, um, you're throwing all of that out of the window.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that's that's important. So now to build towards why we need to talk about category theory because you were talking about, you know, I, I've been pushing for, uh, more discussions of cybernetics of complexity theory. And there have been debates, for example, uh, one of the, one, one of the, the most hotly contested debates in my Patreon group was my assertion that complex social systems, uh, actually use real energy and thus you can calculate them, uh, you can do energy calculuses with them. And I got a lot of pushback from physicists who were like, well, that's, an that's analogous. You can't do that. And then I was like, well, but social systems are made up of discrete real actors, blah, 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 blah. And I realized, uh, th- and this doesn't seem related, but I realized like we don't have a mathematical theory that can actually parse when we're being real and when we're being analogous um and category
1: theory can kind of do that right and this this gets me to the like oh this is
0: why category theory is necessary because otherwise we're going to go around and around and around on whether or not something is an analogy to something else or if something is real or if we just become nominalist about everything um including physics so so
1: what's at stake in category theory and how did it develop So, um, yeah, I I thought um, exactly that I would give kind of um, a historical introduction. And category theory was developed by saunders MacLean and Daniel Eilenberg. And Saunders-McLean was, um, for those who know who that is, he was one of the last um, people from Hilbert's school. So um, that's kind of mathematical formalism. And um, it's a very modernist um, understanding of mathematics. And category theory really pushes this forward. And the problem that um, those two were faced with is they had um, what's called a topological space. Many people will not know what it is, but you can kind of just think of that as space. Um, Mm -hmm. They had kind of spaces that they wanted to understand further. um, And they were starting to associate with those spaces um, invariants, which were not just numerical invariants. For instance, you could try to understand the space by looking at the diameter of the space. Um, to see how big it is or something. But um, those invariants were of a more sophisticated nature. So they were a kind of algebraic invariants. So you would associate to every space um, a kind of algebraic structure that would tell you something about the internal structure of that space. Um, and there were several different ways um, to associate to a space such algebraic structures, which are called groups. Um, Uh, But what they noticed was that there was a natural connection um, between those um, associations of invariants to spaces. And this term natural, um, which is, um, which has grown very important in category theory um, was first handled purely informally. They were saying um, that this is a natural transformation between two such mappings Um, and what category theory really came out of was an attempt to explain what natural transformation really meant. And the way they came, um, the way they un- started to understand this is they were looking at the spaces and they were saying like, um, well, we have those spaces and we have um, kind of mappings between them that for instance, we, we can see, say that a space is a subspace of another space. So that is a kind of embedding of a space into another space. Um, and, and, we can um, look at these spaces from an external perspective. So these spaces would just be um, kind of points and between those spaces would go um, mappings between the spaces that would map one space into another space. And these um, mappings we would call um, morphisms. So we have objects and we have morphisms and the characteristic um, property that a category has is that you can compose these morphisms. So if we think, um, well, we can embed a space into another space and that second space into a third space, well, we can embed the first space into the third space. And this is just an abstraction of this property. And um, so um, this was the concept of, ca- of a category. And then it said, um, all right, we are looking at um, assigning each topological space an invariant. And those should interact well with the mappings between spaces. and um, those should be uh functors. So they call this a functor, and um it should map topological spaces to groups, and it should map mappings between topological spaces to mappings between groups. That's a functor. And then a natural transformation should kind of in, in intermediate between functors and should kind of um should um should be a kind of connection between one functor and another functor that is kind of made out of the mappings between groups. So the, the important part that I um, want to instill here is that what was the focus from the very beginning of category theory It was the most abstract or most um, high in, actually in a precise mathematical, but also in a kind of heuristic sense, um, the most high and sophisticated concept of um, natural transformation And they needed the other two to say exactly what a natural transformation is. And um, so they developed the other two. But um, just the other two, you can kind of handle heuristically. You don't really need category theory for it. It is really the exact description of the third thing that was um, essential. And, um, and, well, a kind of higher structure emerges when you go from... um, from categories um, to an external um, perspective on categories. So you have, um, in a category, you have objects with maps between them. And between categories, you have um, functors, which are, again, like maps in some way. But then you have maps between maps. So this kind of third structure was an emergent structure, which the emergence of this structure is um, kind of magical, if you look at it um, from a mathematical perspective. And it gives rise to a very rich theory. And so this was how this was the this was the um, problem that category theory was designed for was assigning invariants to spaces, and at first it was treated like um, a very convenient language, but it wasn't um, given much of a focus on its own. Um, it was actually thought by MacLane and Eilenberg that the original paper they wrote on category theory would be the only paper on category theory that would ever be written um, because they thought that is pretty much the end of the um, theory. Now, all of this changed when um, Alexander Grotendieck entered the scene, um, who was, um, (laughs) he really was a textbook genius. Um, I'm not using this word um, in this context slightly. He was not just very intelligent, he thought very different to other people. Um, and he was the first to recognize the true potential of category theory, and he started to develop what is, um, called the relative perspective on, um, mathematics, where before you would talk, for instance, about, um, the properties of a space, you would say that the space is smooth in the sense that, um, that it doesn't break up, um, at a, at a certain point or something, um, it doesn't have any corners or something, um, you would say that about a whole space. But he said, um, he noticed that with category theory, um, you can develop all of this relatively. So you can say a map between spaces is smooth. So a space is smooth relative to another space. And this was a major breakthrough. And um, he developed he developed lots and lots of theories um, um, that I cannot explain um, in any reasonable time frame. Yes, um, understood. Yes. Yes. Um, but I thought I could maybe take um a very small um a very small piece of um his achievements, by no means um even among the great ones, um, which is um kind of a puzzle because you might have heard about the notion of isomorphism, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can, can you, you maybe um,
1: explain um what it is? Isomorphism. Um
0: <laughs> uh, let me at least think. So it's a concept that derives from like the idea of equal forms or equal shapes. Um, And this, that you can use these shapes to kind of map out the relationships between, between sets or other kind of um, like formal constructs, uh, which was kind of important in, 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 like, Anglo-set theory, but I don't really know its context here.
1: All right. Um, So in mathematics, isomorphisms are very important. They are special morphisms. Um, Mm -hmm. And from an internal perspective, you can describe um, an isomorphism as um, a kind of mapping that um, keeps all of the structure of whatever you are looking at um, unchanged but it exchanges the names of all of the elements of the thing you're looking at. So you might have the real numbers and then you might exchange the real numbers for some other kind of structure where every real number is just called something differently, but they work in exactly the same way. And then you can say, um, well, I have an isomorphic mapping between those that associates um, every number in the one system with a number in the other system. So these two systems are isomorphic. Um, And this is um, an important notion of equivalence between mathematical structures. And um, in general, it is um, assumed that every mathematical property that is well defined should be invariant under isomorphism. So that it does not matter what you call your elements. Um, it only matters what, how the structure um, you are looking um, at is operating. So that's the internal perspective of an isomorphism. The external perspective of an isomorphism is um, even simpler because you can say an isomorphism is just a morphism in a category between two objects. So you have one object, you have another object, and between those you have a morphism. And this morphism has an inverse that goes in the other direction. And if you go along one and then you go along the other, then um, it's the same as if you have done nothing and in the other direction too. So that is um, the category uh, theoretic treatment of isomorphisms, which is, um, well, well, you see the rich interaction between internal and external um, notions here, but also um, these, um, so the right notion of equivalence within a category is isomorphism. I'm just going to postulate that as an axiom. Now, Mm -hmm. the question is, what is the right notion of equivalence of equivalence between categories, because in each category you have um, objects and you have isomorphisms between them. Okay. You wanna try? I, I, no, I'm lost. <laughs> so. uh, all right. Um, so I, I'll just say that um, the right notion of equivalence is then isomorphism up to isomorphism. So. Okay, yeah,
0: okay. I'm yeah, following you now. Makes
1: sense, right? right um and Grotendieck um, was the first to notice this and this actually um vastly increased the explanatory power of um, category theory um many other things um, happened at the same time but that's one of those things um and so yeah um from that point in time category theory was um started started to be taken seriously and was starting to be um you, come into its own as an independent area of mathematical research. Um, And then um, Laverne entered the scene. And um, Laverne is in particular interesting for us because he he kind of codified um, Hegelian dialectics in um, category theory, um, where I should, of course, give some caveats um, to say that I by no means mean... or. Laverne also not, um, by no means means to imply that all of Hegelian dialectics is just category theory. But what he's saying is there is a very useful kind of um, calculus um, that is very um, akin to just um, the first order logical calculus of uh, predicate logic um, That is um, that can be formulated using category theory and that um, very nicely um, aligns with or is directly inspired by um, what Hegel wrote about his um, dialectics. And I should also um, um, just mention that um, Laver was um, an active um, Marxist-Leninist, is uh, a Marxist-Leninist, he's not active anymore. Um, And um, I think that also played into his desire to kind of um, codify this and also his later treatment of Marx. Well,
0: it's interesting because Laverbe... immediately it's like oh a name i know um I, I know this because i started looking into the attempts starting in the 1960s uh largely with people like Lakatos to to deal with math and in hegelian categories um and and Levers seems to be i mean, is fine but levare seemed to be more respected in Uh, mathematical circles, not just philosophy of mathematics. So
1: to be honest with you, I've never heard the name Lakatos. Okay. Um, So, so Lakatos is just
0: a student of Lukács who worked with the analytic philosophers in America when he was in exile. Um, um, And he's, he's important. Not because he was not a mathematician, he was trying to do philosophy of math, so trying to figure out how you could ground math uh, and and justify it as a science. But also, he was trying to figure out how you how you define science because he was unsatisfied with uh, the you know positivism, of course, then logical positivism, and then its its own collapse of verifiability, and then he had problems with Popper's falsification theorists. Thesis because probability also messes with that. Um, and he's more he's not known in mathematical circles that much. He's more known in philosophy of science circles. But um, when you if you look up dialectics and math, you're going to you're going to get him in English, um, and he uh, most of I believe a lot of most of his late work is in English um and not Hungarian or German. And then you're going to get uh levert um and so i did this <laughs> obviously and so like I, th- this was my own my only four way into this but i knew i knew nothing about category theory um my initial response and we'll get to this later um was that okay so category theory is what replaced set theory i obviously was not educated in this in my basic ass math classes uh, in uni. Um, I'm going to just accept this as truth because it's beyond my pay grade. And um, that was my initial response to it. Um, so so how what how does Lee's work reconcile? you know hegelian dialectics with category theory what's exactly what's it, what is it exactly doing
1: well um it's very interesting and i should say um i actually came upon um way before i um was looking into hegelian philosophy or um before i um was, yeah you um, came upon it Marxist. the
0: proper way
1: <laughs> It's supposed to be well, used, like fine mathematicians
0: who are marxists <laughs>
1: um So what Laverne is doing exactly is um, the central notion um, that he's using is um, that of a unity of opposites. So Mm. the idea is that um, you have one structure, um, which you you can think of them as categories um, in both cases. Um, You have one structure and you have another structure. And um, this structure um, is embedded into the other structure at two kind of um, opposite extremes. So um, in many contexts, you can kind of think of a category as an order. Um, it is not exactly an order, but um, it is very similar to it. And um, in particular, you can, um, a lot of categories have like a beginning and an end. And um, usually the one structure is um, embedded in um, the other structure um, at the beginning and at the end in some mathematical sense. And between them is spanned the whole other category. And this is kind of his form, um, formalization of a unity of opposites because the object that is embedded um, is embedded two times, but in ca- exa- exactly opposite context. So, in the abstract, those two um, embedding or those two um, kind of substructures are the same, but um, in the concrete, they are, they are exactly opposite. And in fact, they have to be abstractly the same to be com- uh, concretely opposite. So um the um the simplest example is um the beginning and the end of a line. Um the beginning of the line is point, the end of the line is point, um, and between them is the whole line, and they are exactly opposites because they are the same, because they are both both points. Um
0: they're, they're both points, but they exist at opposite ends of a line and thus do opposite things, therefore they are both the same and, oppo- and opposite definitionally at the same time. Yeah. Got
1: it. <laughs> All right. Yes. And um, the next thing um, on his um, list was um, Aufhebung, and this is where it gets a little more complicated. Um, but roughly speaking, you can um, you can, um, you, can kind of unify, um, you can kind of unify you um, can kind of unify these two sub objects as uh, let's let's stick with the example of a line. Um, you can say, well, both of these um, objects are, of course, related in that they are um, the opposite ends of the same line. So now you might look at a square, you know, um, and you can say um, the one line of the square is, again, the opposite of the other line of the square. And that is kind of his idea of Aufhebung, that um, you have a higher um, a higher um, unity of opposites that encompasses the previous unity of opposites at one of its, um, at one of its moments. Mm. Okay. And in this sense, um, I mean, it's really beautiful because it, um, it really um, captures all the three, um, all the three um, um, ideas of, aufheb- uh, all, the f- uh, all the three meanings of Aufhebung, um, which is um, to preserve the original opposition is preserved in the higher opposition it is also negated because now you have um, an opposing moment, um, and it is also um, sublated because, um, well, now you have this higher um, this higher opposition of um, unities, that um, well, it's literally um, it's literally um, a higher extension of the previous opposition of unities. Okay.
0: So- okay. I- 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 Yes. Okay. Like uh, it, it is. It. I think it's making sense to me as we talk about it, um, and I can see how that would mean. That, I mean, this would vindicate certain elements of Hegel's uh, longer logic that seem to have been generally written off as purely mystical. Uh, yes. Priorly,
1: and I myself, if I had read Hegel before, I've known about this. Um, I would have said this is just mystical mumbo jumbo. I mean, I'm mm. interested in mystical stuff um, mostly because of kind of my family background. Um, but yeah, I, I'm also interested
0: I, in mystical mumbo jumbo. But 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 I will call it what it is. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but Laver made it into um, an exact mathematical structure, and then he applied it to. Um, kind of um, categorical set theory. So um, it's not just a set uh, category theory replaced set theory, but the ki- those two are um, kind of, um, they also, um, um, ah, fuck the English word, um, they um, against um, uh, Overlap? Complement each other. Um, complement, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they complement each other. Um, yeah, I was going to ask he- you about,
0: more about how, about set theory and, and category theory because I know that they relate and they're not the same, but they're also not opposed, but yeah, go ahead.
1: Um, well, maybe we can just um, give a very brief interlude um, so mm-hmm. that, so that we understand category theory a little bit better and how it understands structures, because the thing is that um, every, int- in category theory, um, you can derive every internal um, kind of notion about an object um, from its from its position in the network of objects of the same kind. So um, you might have a a real number, and you can understand this this as the embedding of a point into the real number line. Um, And there is a very fundamental lemma of um, category theory, the so-called Yoneda Lemma, which um, basically tells you that, in fact, um, the internal structure of an object in a category um, is completely detected by the morphisms um, that go into this object in the category. So, in category theory, there is a very rich interplay between the internal and the external. And fundamentally, um, category theory is about the external perspective. But you can, um, you can, um, you can um, derive the internal perspective on any particular object um, from um, from its place within the larger nexus. And of course, um, and I know you see this immediately that this, has, this is very connected to structuralism and to process philosophy and um, all of these things. That's also why category theory is often identified with structuralism in mathematics. Um, and on the other hand, um, every category itself is an object in a larger nexus. Um, so, uh, so you never really completely um, get out of the internal perspective either. Um, and so um, set theory can be reformulated within category theory, kind of on purely external grounds. So you give um, you give some axioms for a category that this category should fulfill, and then you can um, derive um, the usual statements um, that you have in set theory from these. So um, you have then not a set that consists of um, of objects, but rather um, you have one object in a category. Um, you don't have a set that consists of elements but rather you have an object within a category and um, this object um, has um, certain generalized elements that are given by the embeddings of um, other objects into this object and in particular um, from the point um, um, of this category so the Kind of one element set on, um, of this category into um, this um, object. So, in other words, an object with or an element of a set is the same thing as an, an embedding of the one element set into um, into um, this object. All right. It, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that 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 clarifies it to some degree. Um, so. So it would it be would it be fair to say that one of the things i mean set theory seems abstract but, but but in some ways the morphisms and stuff in category theory are even more abstract than the elements in set theory and I, well, by abstract i mean just formal <laughs> um no yes
1: <laughs> yes and no <laughs> okay. um i mean there are i think there are different kinds of abstraction within mathematics And Mm -hmm. um, traditional set theory very much goes into the kind of logical model theoretic treatment of um, objects where you kind of think about them in terms of symbols and strings Mm -hmm. of um, letters and stuff like that. Um, Whereas category theory goes in a very different direction where you think of everything in terms of morphisms and um, um, well, morphisms mainly and higher morphisms sometimes. Um, And I think, um, I think one of the things that I, want to qualify in this context is that I at least find the abstraction of category theory a lot easier to handle than the abstraction of set theory. So um, I've learned set theory. Um, I kind of hate um, the traditional treatments of set theory um, because um, I've studied actually one where they wrote um, all the time about ZFC, um, the kind of mainstream set theory, and um, they said some they said something really difficult, and then at the end of the proof um, they they mentioned well we could also use the thing that is equivalent to set of c and it the whole proof goes over way easier but we're still going to use set of c and you know i hate this kind of stuff <laughs> um, category theory is nothing like that um in category theory the easiest solution is the one that is taken um so category theory is in particular um distinguished from other mathematical um disciplines by its complete conceptual clarity um not everything, um, not every category, category theoretical construction is completely conceptually clear. But um, the aim is to have as clear um, of mathematics as you can possibly have. And this is also why it is largely identified with conceptual mathematics. Um, and why it is, um, I think, way easier to handle than um, more traditional systems like set theory. Okay. Um I like,
0: (laughs) I don't like elegance as a criterion for truth, but I do like elegance as a criterion for discussing things or operating because I, I have, I, I've never loved when, like, like you said, in set theory, like we're going to choose to do something the hard way. So that it's more consistent with this theory, uh, even though we realize that there are easier ways to do this. Have a nice day. Yeah. Um, that's the clearer madness. the water,
1: um, the further you can see. It is always the analogy I'm using. Yeah, and, and category theory
0: is does seem to be does seem to be helpful, and and now we can turn a little bit to what we know its practicality to be, because people are probably like, okay, well, why does all this abstract shit matter? And th- the first thing I will say is, modern computing theory is largely based
1: on category theory. Um, Can you go into that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, it is largely based on type theory, but those two things are pretty much the same. Like type theory is an internal perspective on category theory to a large extent. And, well, type theory is um, about um, like what sorts um, do, like you might have, for instance, um, programmers um, have often seen this, that you have... um, an object of a particular sort. So you might have an object of the integers and then you can't divide it by certain numbers because it is not of the sort of a rational number or something. And type theory is um, the underlying structure that um, structures how um, how sorts are interrelated. Um, so I'm using sorts here as um, syn- syn- synonymous with um, types. And um, yeah, type theory, kind of tells you um, how these different types are related. And um, category theory does the same thing, but it does it from an external perspective. And there is kind of a very, very deep um, theorem that tells you that um, traditional logic and type theory and category theory are to a large extent the same. Mm. So you can identify a morphism in a category with um, a proof in logic and with um, um, with a um, with a program in type theory, those right. three things um, are um, um, are identifiable, and category theory can tell you the exact se- sense in which they are identifiable.
0: And that's important because otherwise, you're you. I mean, prior to talk about like the classical case. Um, the classical case of, of of aligning predicate logic with math theory is geometry, for example, like like in ancient in the ancient world. And if you literalize that, like say Plato does, stuff gets weird. Um, so having an ability to having a base theory that can tie um, type theory or our programming, uh, our language. Um, to to formal logic formalization to something deeper is actually a big fucking deal, um, and this is why it's important to that thing we were talking about way back when you're trying to figure out what is an analogy and what is quote real or natural, uh, and for naturalness to have any kind of useful meaning in in the formal sense because it's so. The the question of natural and and like and like linguistic philosophy is one of those things where I go off at Kinsingian because I'm like, well, the concepts start getting weird, but <laughs> but if you if you're defining it mathematically, you have something to work off of. Um, you can start dealing with with these things in a way where you can actually say something about uh, structures and uh, and the way they might work. From one level of discussion to another, instead of just being like, well, this level of science, we can't talk about it at this other level of science because there's an implacable language gap or concept gap that makes it, that makes moving from one to the other impossible. Um, And that's helpful. Um, It's also... It's also one of these things where I used to think, for example, that like statistics and these other maths are the only maths that you use in a practical day to day language, but actually, no, number theory, category theory are something that we actually kind of um, are conceptually like using without realizing it kind of all the time. Um, yes.
1: And one of the most important functions of category theory, um, as they say within category theory, is that it um, makes the trivial seem trivially trivial. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, clarification is actually one of the main benefits of category theory. There are lots of others, but it is definitely up there. And um, it, it gives you a kind of mental framework that makes it very easy to distinguish, for instance, a theory and a model, or, um, I don't know um a particular kind of logic and the structures within that kind of logic and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, uh, as a side note, as someone who comes out of a linguistic philosophy, the theory versus model versus reality debate uh is is a maddening debate that people often don't realize that they do not the how How without mathematics, it's an almost impossible thing to deal with. Um, But yeah, so so this brings me to a question, though. Um, This all seems very, I think, to the average political thinker, this is all going to seem extremely abstract or obtruse. Um, But one thing you and I both agree with is we're very frustrated with political radicals who often come up with other kinds of very abstract and abstruse philosophies, uh not using modern math theory, modern physics, or, or you know, and, and using them responsibly, uh not just as like math themes or something.
1: Yeah, um, like Lacan with um... yeah. Misusing elementary mathematical concepts, um, yeah, that I hate that stuff. And I also hate when I have heard this from Marxists from time to time that they're like, "Well, all of this mathematics is basically um, bad because it's not dialectical enough, and um, and we can't really have real mathematics within capitalism because you know, like the means of uh, our mode of production influences our, our thoughts and so on and so forth." And I'm like, "Well, all right, but we." do need something because we do need like socialism uh, and um, we need to have like, we need to have an idea of how an economy works to change it into something else. Um, And like, if you don't like it, then make it better. Like you're invited. Well, yeah, this is,
0: this is an important point because I used to, I used to be one of these people who took the mode of production slash knowledge production seriously uh, on an almost... Foucauldian sense, even whereas, like you're talking about one episteme you can't speak to another episteme. We don't really understand what it means to think like a Platonist because we live in a capitalist society and have, and and to some degree, I, I still hold on to a loose sense of that. Like, no, the average the average modern Platonist doesn't actually think like an ancient Platonist. but, sure, but the
1: same is true about new Platonists, for example. R-
0: right, right. Um, but that's a superficial problem, and to it, it is an obscurantist argument to say that we can't deal with math because we can't get the true math until we have socialism, or we can't deal with uh, analytic philosophy because it's not properly dialectical, but then read what people are citing as their... Uh, reasons for this i mean my my favorite one and the most obvious one is all these people who bring up 19th century arguments against the big bang as propagated by lenin and trotsky based off of, off of misconceptions of what both dialectics and energy flows actually are and and that's predicated on just not keeping up with modern Math and science. And yes, if modern math and science is corrupted by capitalism, and to some degree I would say duh. Um, but that doesn't mean that like that would also be our the, the analogous argument is we can't use English because it was developed by uh capitalist Brits and we should only be speaking in some true socialist language which doesn't exist yet, therefore we should not deal with linguistics. Well, like that's a ridiculous argument as soon as you phrase it that way,
1: yeah, um well, two things first of um of course we have um we have to build socialism out of capitalism, and we have to use the tools that are available to us um I mean mm-hmm. this is elementary marxism, I think um and um second, there is a sleight of hand that really annoys me that um I have seen Marxists do um quite a few times, which is that um first they say something like um well um it's one of the most natural things to consider that um our mode of think or that our mode of societal reproduction influences all areas of society and in particular also our thinking all right um and then they go to um well therefore we we might not be we not, we might not be able to think certain things um or like as they wrote in the communist manifesto, don't come to us with like um I'm of course paraphrasing um, with your notions of freedom and equality and justice and so on and so forth. These are all created by um, our, by the mode of production and will vanish as soon as this changes. Um, And it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, Is our thinking influenced by our mode of production or is it determined by our mode of production? Because in the natural sciences, those two are very different because if our thinking is influenced by our mode of production, then we might think that um, certain things are implausible and that certain things are more plausible than we might actually um, that they than they might actually be. And so, if you have, for instance, a physical theory, we might try the things that we think are most plausible first. And um, if they don't work, then we can always go to the um, implausible ones. So, in this in this case, um, the scientific process still works um, even within capitalism. It it just might be very much slower because. Um, because our weightings of what is, um, what is probable and what is not probable um, might be wrong. But if our thinking is determined by our mode of production, then there might be thoughts that we just cannot think, not because um, our thinking is inherently um, not capable of doing this, but because our um, economic system does not allow for us to think this. So then it might be that, for instance, the true nature of the universe just cannot be thought by us within our um, economy as we have it. Those two are very different things. And I'm not saying um, that the second one is wrong or something. I'm just saying, don't do this sleight of hand because it's bad thinking.
0: So th- this is something that, that that has this exact problem bugs me. Because I tend to think that the first assertion is obvious. And the second assertion, um, I don't even know how you'd prove it. Like, I I don't know how you'd prove that we can't think certain thoughts because of our mode of production. Uh, although I can clearly think of ways that you can at least complicate that assertion. It's like, well, clearly, if we go back to prior modes of production or semi-modes of production or whatever, um, you start seeing people thinking capitalist-like thoughts way before the system of its instantiation um, existed. Like you can go back to the late, you know, late antique Rome, and start seeing people messing with ideas that are concurrent with liberalism, um, but they can't pull them off yet for whatever reason. Uh, and this leads to two weird errors in Marxism, and not so much a not so much a mathematical thing, where you have to continuously redefine what a mode of production is and broaden it to where you get like uh, certain. Like uh, uh, Jairus Banerjee, who thinks that we can now talk about commercial capitalism going all the way back into like the f- second century of the Roman Empire, um, uh, if not before. Um, or you, you you get into what we have to uh, jettison modes of production altogether, because clearly, if it's a com- concrete, discrete unit, we can find elements of other things. So this category is useless. Um,
1: well, but you can also i think um have like um a third option, which would be well, people can have this these thoughts, but um these societal um preconditions are just not given for these thoughts bingo. to catch on,
0: yeah, exactly. that's my answer to the question is like the material and social conditions for thoughts to be broadly adopted don't exist, but an individual can clearly think them, right, like. To me, that's the that's that's the natural conclusion that we can draw, Um, which means then we should use everything that currently exists at our thing, knowing that we're probably just going to be slower in actually using it like we're, we're not going to be like, are it's going to be used in a strange way or, you know, said the teleos of a technology rebuild is going to be geared towards something that we're going to have to change, but the actual like engineering is probably useful. Um, uh, and if you don't go this way, you, I, I know this has fallen out of favor in the last 10 years, but I, I saw this a lot in the nineties and the odds, you end up thinking to yourself, well, we have to like completely destroy all bourgeois and all technological society and embrace like, I don't know, primitive communism or rewilding or something because everything is corrupted by the mode of production and there's nothing in which we can salvage. Um,
1: yeah. That's, I don't find that useful problem. at
0: all. I think it's, a, I, first of all, I think that that deductions based on like a logical error, but two, I, I think that's, it's kind of insane. Like it's, it's, it, you know, it's just like, okay, so we have to reject everything. And if you take this to a logical conclusion, like someone like John Sayerson actually tried to do in the United States, you start like talking about how we need to lobotomize um, the human beings so that they can't develop abstract stock. So they can't have reification so that they can't redevelop civilization and thus redevelop the modes of production. And it's just like, (laughs) what? Like, (laughs) like, you know, and, and 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 even Saracen doesn't continue with this but he has an essay where he goes there and I'm just like yeah this is why this way of thinking doesn't get you what you want it to i think
1: yeah but i mean it's at least valuable as a kind of counter example of an example of what not to do yeah it no it is it it, it, it there's a lot of good things to be learned negatively like
0: you know, but uh it, yeah it, yeah, I, I think I think the Frankfurt School also is some. As much as I like the Frankfurt School, is also sometimes a good example of what not to do because their arguments against positivism become an argument against like pretty much all of science and or technological development. Even though they don't, they don't actually hold primitivist um, readings of society that that they're the. That their attacks on positivism actually are part of the logic of the people who do. Um, So it's. it's You can easily
1: abuse that. Um, I mean, you can say that this is already kind of an abuse. But um, because Marxism is such a totalizing critique of um, society, it lends itself to um, these kind of um, thought extremes. And at the same time, we can't just go the postmodern route and just say, "Well, n- there are no um, meta narratives; there is only like local narratives." Um, and and um, we can't do that either. So what we I think what we have to do is we have to like go the path of um, Marxism, at least in so much as it is politically re- relevant. But at the same time, we have to be really careful about um, our thinking so that we don't. Um, do any leaps that might get us into, um, into like these weirder territories. So to bring this back to to math,
0: um, we're talking about how category theory, and I think our example of it is, uh, is how, okay, now we have a way to formally say a Hegelian, Hegelian dialectical logic as stated in the science, it does not have to be, um pseudoscientific mysticism um are 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 just or ascientific you know mysticism um not all mysticism is pseudoscientific but that it is actually we can formalize it in a way that is productively useful for doing um for, for doing practical math and also coming up with a theory, which makes that practical math possible and jumping between category. Well, I, I hate English right now because categories <laughs> here has two meanings. but jumping between levels of description, like we were talking about with um, say, going between a logical statement, a, a programming uh, equation and um, you know, figuring out morphisms and category theory. And, um, and that gives, and that gives us a way to also talk about like different levels of science and different levels of complexity, uh, and still be valid, um, and not, you know, not being predicated off of some secret and unrealized metaphor. Um,
1: yeah. Um, and um, these structures, Navier's um, um, structures, have been unbelievably powerful. Um, like um, Urs Schreiber, um, who is uh, a physicist foremost and um, a mathematician second and a philosopher uh, distant third. Um, but he um, he has developed um, um, Laver's calculus um, further into a particular direction, which um, Laveriere might not actually like a lot. Um, But in any case, um, he has developed it further, and it comes really, really close to M-theory. So to the common generalization of the different string theories and um, supergravity. So it it comes really, really close to a description of the universe um, that is um, congruent with um, what we know from physics at this point in time. So um, this is, of course, really interesting because Hegel, again, had also this kind of totalizing view of society, and um, a lot of what Hegel said um, can be reinterpreted in a way that it it becomes useful, uh, not just useful, but um, true um, through these um, um, through um, through these mathematical theories or mathematical physical theories. Um. Yeah, I think I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. So, so.
0: Um, Aside from just trying to save Hegel, because, you know, I I have a deep, deep love, but also ambivalence about Hegel because I do suspect like that sometimes when he's right, he's right by accident. Um, Oh, yeah,
1: that's (laughs) that's what I wanted to say, Um, because, of course, the question is, um, how did Hegel um, kind of figure this out? And he credits um, super sensuous inner intuition for this. And he explicitly draws comparisons to mysticism, um, and he says that his method is, in a sense, um, mystical. In another sense, it is scientific. It is kind of both. Um, so, the, uh, but um, but he says that he developed this from um, inner speculation, which is kind of well. First of, um, like the rational part of my brain, um, alarm clocks are, sh- are shrilling um, because like um, inner intuition can be anything. But the question arises. Of if this stuff is actually, if Laver didn't just see whatever in Hegel, but actually um, saw things in Hegel that were in Hegel, um, then how did Hegel um, figure this out? And this poses some very fundamental questions and goes into, um, yeah, it goes into the question of mysticism and um, its applicability to the sciences and to physics and mathematics in particular. And um, it opens some very interesting thoughts and my kind of position. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a mathematicist, so I do believe that um, the universe is a mathematical structure. And then this kind of conflict goes away because particularly in category theory, um, mathematical structures have a very great degree of recursive- recursive- recursiveness um, and uh, where kind of lower dimensional structures are imitated by higher dimensional structures and vice versa. And then it just makes sense that, um, within our universe, um, if we've evolved, which I assume, um, and our thinking has evolved, um, to understand, um, the natural laws or to survive, you know, um, but surviving is, it's useful to understand natural laws to survive. Um, then it makes sense that within our, within our thinking, um, are um, traces of the logical systems that the universe itself is following. Um, So then it makes sense that through inner intuition, kind of like you would um, understand um, normal logic or kind of predicate logic um, without ever having the need to formalize predicate logic, um, that that you would also intuitively um, understand um, dialectics without ever having to try to formalize um, dialectics that it is just something that is inherent to our thinking because it is inherent to our universe because our universe is uh, mathematical and mathematical is, uh, or mathematics um, shows um, dialectical um, structures. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so as a mathematicist, and I like to use that term, I normally call people who mathematicists Platonists, but not in the sense of normal, just because they believe that math is an actual reality. Um, well, I find that so you may know my position. My My position is usually an abducted position in which I think that that the what, that what math is describing is is real. Um, I do not know that math itself, the way we use it, is real. Uh, but I have to admit that convergent development through through. Um, non-scientific means meaning that like we will hit on certain truths by basically by accident but are by trying to be consistent in a weird framework like like um you go into buddhist abhidhamma our christian our, our christian um uh, uh catholic christian logics and you start seeing these these things emerge that rhyme um and well if if you take the theory that the universe is basically mathematical and we, as existing in the universe, have some natural inclination to, to understand that because it is of use for our survival, um, then it would make sense that these things would develop even pre a modern scientific framework um, because we're going to interpret certain things through a culturalist Lens, But what we are intuiting or feeling are are working out logically, uh, we would all have because that's part of what our brains evolved to do. Um, I admit that that's like uh, a good pushback on my kind of culturalist views of, say, math, because um, there is a sense in which math does develop... um, universally now what what is interesting is i know i know what we're going to get for this because i've seen i've seen people push back on me when i say that like that math is not racialized and people are like oh yeah it is it was developed by but and i'm like well you know one our modern math technologies are not all a product of europe at all um you know <laughs> and true. by and by technologies i mean like numbers zero concept like um Indian numeral system. Yeah, Indian numeral system. A lot of Arabic innovations in um, in um, logic and and geometry. um, You know, uh, and there were convergent developments in indigenous cultures in in the Americas. So, um, you know, uh, you get you know you get into the unprovable hypothesis about like, well, the, the the convergences are superficial. Blah blah blah. Well, to, to me, if to a certain point, it doesn't matter. Like if they do the same things, it, it, even if the convergences were accidentally superficial, then um, anyway, um, it, it's not a big deal. But um, I think that's an interesting, you know, pushback on the kind of Fukuyama inclinations that we're all kind of taught in. school in humanities programs that cultures are kinda self-sufficient, completely su so generous, and that individuals are either completely tabula rasa or so much tabula rasa that we can't talk about this stuff. And you cannot make cost control comparisons using math without imposing some kind of like Eurocentric or white centric um, you know standard upon other societies, which is to me a, a weird argument, but it's one that is super common on the left. That, I think that's the one. The other one that you get, um, we haven't talked about it as much, but like there's a lot of even you know, if you're not dealing with Marxist Leninist and you know, to be fair, outside of Europe, you're probably not a lot, um, uh, unless you're dealing in the United States with teenagers. Um, um the are, well, let me rephrase that. Are in China, big brackets, China. But um, but in general, um, you're going to get a lot of postmodernist pushback to this stuff. And my response to that is if you take a lot of the poststructural assumptions seriously, you, one, can't explain change in society at all. You, you just can't. Like, it's arbitrary. Um not and people will say contingent when they mean arbitrary. I mean it yes, of course it's contingent, but you're describing it as completely random, and you there's no way to understand the transition. Um because you can understand contingencies. Um and then the second issue that you get is uh there's no way to even communicate these understandings that would be universally meaningful. Um so even to state a relevant position becomes kind of a, you know, the classic, like, well, to state the relevant position, to state it is to state it in absolute terms, and you get into a fucking uh, linguistic paradox or a linguistic contradiction.
1: Um well, who was the, the Greek who said that um, we can't know if reality is real um, if, or if anything is real. If we knew anything was real, we certainly can't communicate it. And um, some third thing... Um, but in any case, um, you know, it, it, um, it doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. But what I want, um, what I wanted to say is, first of all, there is a kind of um, linguistic problem that we have with mathematics that we don't have with other sciences, because mm-hmm. mathematics can both um, describe um, a field of science and the object it, it studies. And you don't have this problem with physics. You wouldn't say physics when you mean the universe. Um, but you do have it with mathematics, which introduces a kind of linguistic confusion and then you can ask well is there even a real structure behind it um and that makes all makes it all even more complicated um so this is a problem um and the second thing i wanted to mention is well the postmodernists can't afford to do that because they don't really want to change society um they've basically given up like we want to change society we should we should really use science Um, we can't just say well it's all regimes of power or whatever because these, these sciences are useful to us, or they can be useful to us.
0: Hmm. Okay, well, that's that's a, a good point. Um, it, it is, you know, I don't know how you feel about the works of Alain Badu uh, but this is a point that he makes, is once you give up on the idea of of an objected, of an objected truth, the idea of social change becomes just completely irrelevant because it's arbitrary anyway. Um, yeah, we could just uh, give up. Yeah, yeah. Like, why, why bother? I mean, and there is a sense. I actually admired the American postmodernists more than the European ones on this because they admitted this where the European ones were still kind of like gesture vaguely towards the possibility of radical change. You have people like Richard Worthy, who's just like, no, I'm like, we just should be, you know, humane bourgeois liberals because we can't think of anything else. So it doesn't really matter anyway. Um, So go be humane bourgeois liberals. And well, well, I thought, yeah. Our, yeah our happy nihilists which which I can be which I can rock as an answer kinda but it, it still makes social change sort of like well why bother um yeah. and so I think this was the point um this was a uh, uh Badu was was arguing against um uh, not just uh, post structuralists but also um, also uh, utilitarians and um, empiricist um, and I you know in my vague you know broad gestures way have always said well the modern scientific method is kind of the dialectical combination of logical and empirical um methodologies of the of, of like the early enlightenment and people are like yeah but but and i'm like yeah it, that's not strictly speaking true but it's the best way to understand it where we are like we have a logical check on empirical claims and an empirical check on logical claims like um uh which beforehand we did not so you know um i think that's important and this good this uh Brings me to one last question, though, and, and I know this is a we for people who don't understand math. This has been kind of into the deep end of the pool and then moving rapidly back to the shallow end and then back into the deep end of the pool. Um, I, I want people to listen and realize that, that this is important and also interesting, like because I, I suffered from a bad American mathematics education until literally graduate school. And I thought math was not interesting and and it would two things changed that one was i had a really good statistics class and two i got really interested into the into the debates around um string theory's provability versus classical model, model physics of which math theory is absolutely crucial and with which um and this has practical effects um practical thing, uh argumentation like there's practical implications of it as well as um what we might call metaphysical implications of it um and i realized that like hey this math shit was interesting um and then i realized that i wasn't actually that bad at it because i think most people i i the idea that you are language-brained or math-brained to me is Nonsense, um, because they overlap, and even even in like if you look at like where the the areas of the and I will say take all this with a grain of salt. We realize the problems with cognitive neurology and and mental imaging, but it does look like, for example, when you use language, parts of your brain light up, and similar parts of your brain light up when you do math. They're not actually that separate into see them as opposed to disease is just fundamentally wrong. Um, but this is a big, but what are the complications of, of category theory? You sent me one article that was really above my pay grade, but I've been reading it. Um, and it was like the, the problems are failures of category theory. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a debunking of category theory. It's just trying to go into the things that we still don't yet know, or haven't figured out or don't have a theory for uh it,
1: see, Can you go into that a little bit? Um, yes. And I, um, but before that, I just wanted to mention, like I used to hate math in my school okay, good. education. Um, and I'm
0: so um, the only one.
1: <laughs> no. Um, and I also, um, like university education was a lot better. Um, it was a lot more fun. You basically go through all the concepts um that you learn in school again, um, but way better. Um, but it's still not that good. Um, but, um, yeah, with category theory, I, um, I actually started to do it for procrastination. That that's part of what made me pretty knowledgeable in this area. That when I had some formal task I should do or something, I would just um, look at category theory instead. Um, so category theory was really a um, kind of life changer for me, um, in that it it made mathematics um, it made ma- mathematics really fun. Um, and I was actually thinking about quitting um, and doing something arts, artsy or something. Um, and mathematics can be outflow. Um, but I thought it was not really for me. Um, but category theory really changed it. Um, and um, what was your question again? Um, no, oh, said- yeah, right. The failures of, or the insufficiencies of category theory. Mm-hmm. So, um, one thing that um, a lot of people don't understand about um, pure math is that the structures that are studied in, within pure math are actually very, very simple. That is why we can say a lot of um, interesting things about them, because, um, again, the clearer the water, the, the further you can see. And if the objects are very simple, um, then you can say a lot about them. Um, but of course, something like, um, economic processes, um, are not very simple. There are a lot of feedback loops. There are all kinds of interactions. There are just basic questions like what is money? What is value? Um, <laughs> Um, things that are pre-mathematical in a sense that um, because mathematics usually starts with the definitions and th- that's before the definition is even um, taken. And um, category theory was um, really devised for purely mathematical purposes. So it was devised for um, for simple qualitative um, systems. So um, um, kinds of failures of ca- category theory, particularly to economics, which um, was um, with this article I sent you, Are, for instance, that mathematics uh, uh, or category theory usually deals with statements like, um, for everything in this um, thing, there is something in this other thing. Um, In economics, you often don't have these precise statements, but you have like um, most things that are this are this or they become this or something. So um, it's not, um, it's not. Um, completely correct statements, but it's kind of probabilistic statements that you say um, the amount of things that don't follow this process are negligible or something like that. Um, That's one failure. Another failure is that um, category theory usually deals with qualitative systems. It um, is less designed um, for quantitative systems. And this is actually something that I am working on is um, getting... um, getting category theory to to work with quantities, not just um, qualities of objects. Um, Another failure is, um, well, this ties kind of into the first thing, that um, strict logic is often not the best way to approach um, economics, but what you need is a kind of um, probabilistic weakening of logic or maybe even a kind of paraconsistent logic or something like that. Um, And category theory um, has a lot of... um, a lot of um, experience with suspending the law of the excluded middle, um, saying that um, a statement can be um, neither A nor the negation of A, or um, for a thing this can be true that it is neither A nor the negation of A, but it hasn't really dealt with contradictory statements or something like that, which you often have in economics that you get data sets that contain information that might be contradictory because um, for instance one part of the information is just wrong you know um, and you need um, you need to have a framework um, for um, for handling that um, what are other um, insufficiencies um, I don't know this um these are already um, a few uh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I can't really, um, no, I can't that, that, really think that, about it. Fine. Oh, right. Um, there is another one, which is um, that category theory usually de- deals with processes that are instantaneous um, in the sense that mathemat- time doesn't really exist within um, the realm of mathematics itself. It deals with spaces. It deals with um, all kinds of things. But even when time is, for instance, modeled, it is in an essentially a geometric way. You have a space that then has a coordinate that corresponds to time or something. Um, and so the morphisms in category theory usually have no length, whereas for instance, with an economic process, you might want to say that this process requires this amount of labor power or um, this amount of capital or whatever, so um, these processes, if you want them to be morphisms um, for instance, um, they should have a certain length, so you need to introduce length into category theory, this also um, goes into um, things that I am researching on right now um, so this is another failure, you need to kind of get metric back into category theory um, yeah no th-
0: these are all useful and, and actually illustrates a couple of problems um, in general uh, so for example a, a common complaint against analytic philosophy which is not universally true but it is generally true like as a you can you can look through enough of modern anglo-american analytic philosophy and see this trend is time is factored out because of the analogy to math or if time is treated, it is treated as identical to space, um, which in terms of understanding historical processes is kind of fucking useless. So it's it's uh, that's a general problem in analytic philosophy. Um, and conversely, it also makes um, people like the cleo Dynamics people who are trying to do math in history and trying to say history if mathematically solvent, which I am sympathetic with, uh, you always, however, have to look at how they're modeling things and what they're bracketing out of their models because they're bracketing out of out something in time or in duration or in category to make a claim um, because... Right now, there's not a simple way to do that with one type of math. Like, there are maths that can handle that. That's not my point. Um, But it's there's not one way in which there's not a universal theory yet that ties all these things together, um, which would be necessary. And if someone was to come up with it, like, we probably could start looking at history a lot more mathematically solvently, um, which right now we just kind of can't do. I mean, we can talk about statistics or you know fuzzy logics, you know, uh fuzzy maps, uh, and then you get in the God, this is beyond today, but one day I need to get someone on to explain to Marxists like the the different the arguments about statistics and Bayesianism and all this because they just seem to not want to touch it at all. Um But these are the kinds of problems that you 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 occur, like you run into. Um for me the reason why i wanted to have you on to talk about this um and uh i plan on having you back probably in a couple months um is uh i wanted people to see that that there's these categories of mathematics that are that seem obscure that are actually incredibly important for us to be able to do things like if we want to make if we want to start going back and doing um uh, proper Marxist dialectics But with an understanding of systems theory General systems theories Then we're also going to have to go back And like incorporate modern mathematics Which We're finding out Vindicate elements Of Hegelian and Marxist logic uh, No it's not perfect You know Like, um, And there's going to be things We have to jettison and I'm not sure what they are yet But that, you know, I always like to say that is what Marx and Engels would have done. Like, like if you read Engels's anthropological work, he he hits on some key things that are that he's kind of accidentally correct on. And he hits on some stuff that's total bullshit um, because of like general 19th 19th century assumptions about things like Lemurians. But it's it, it was still. You know, scientifically valid and working with the context of his day, and he would have updated it if he had our science. Like the fact that Darwin and Lamarck were bourgeois scientists didn't stop Ingalls from trying to use them, right? Yeah. Um. And that's a pretty big
1: point. (laughs) And Max went into mathematics precisely because he wanted to do it. um, To do it to his um, understanding of philosophy and stuff. And yeah. um, he wanted it for his economics. And um, I think Engels said that um, he wants to teach, um, I don't know, his um, students or something, um, um, analysis um, for preparing for their battle plans. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how, um, <laughs> how important and why analysis is important for battle plans, but he seemed to have an idea. And I think there are definitely areas of mathematics that are important for like geopolitical strategy and stuff. Um Definitely. Uh, Even just in the modern time, you need you need to have like a grasp of um, theoretical computer science to or practical computer science at the very least to build up parallel structures that you can use to um, coordinate. And um, you need to have um, some idea of how you can construct like uh, models um, for um, for whatever interactions you have. Like um, you, you often talk about um, game theory. That's also part of this. That you have a game theoretic understanding of um, the interactions um, that occur within the normal political political context and within the international context between nation states. Right, I do, and and um, a lot of people get really worried about that because,
0: it, like, they say, "Well, game theory developed in the course of the Cold War and And I'm like, "Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it was all of it was wrong." Um, also, like with like when getting into math theories, a lot of times what people are, are talking about with game theory is zero-sum game theory based off of Cold War novels, but there are other game theoretic frameworks that are useful and that are not necessarily zero-sum. Although usually I will say when modeling nation-state competition, you probably should model zero-sum competition. Um, um, that's just... For reasons that I think are, are, are about the, the nature of nation states, not more more than nature of people, that's how they operate. I actually would advise against modeling people in most cases on zero sum games, for example. I don't think that works. But yeah, you know, it, it, uh but it does require a little bit of knowledge of math, and then once you see it, it's one of those things where like I find <laughs> I find that we spend a lot of time in the emotive parts of, of theory and you know psychoanalysis and all this. And and one of the things I, I will say is I've become convinced that psychoanalysis is actually useful over time, which I used to not believe, even though I do think a lot of its science is horribly out of date. Um, that yeah. there's some thick description there that rhymes with things that we will probably
1: find. Um, yeah, but can I um, just say, um, like, um, some food for thought? Um, I think um, Marxists are actually really shooting them- themselves in the foot by um, um, by following Freud, but completely neglecting Jung. Because think about who won the culture war, fucking Jung. Um <laughs> <laughs> before even before um, Joseph Campbell um, and before Jordan Peterson. You had um, Tolkien, you had um, Frank Herbert, um, and you had um, Hermann Hesse. And, you know, Tolkien sold like the most books, I think, in the last century and among the most books um, of all time. And again, then you had Joseph Campbell, who kind of made union psychology into a recipe that now is every movie ever. And then you have um, Jordan Peterson, who trivializes the whole thing again and um, kind of uses it as a kind of um, conservative self-help thing um and is really successful with it so um yeah I, i'm not saying jung is um like um, be, um like not um worthy of criticism but um i think there is something powerful about the theory because otherwise it just wouldn't have the popular um appeal that it does it it what's interesting
0: about it is this, uh, of the psychoanalytic theories like you teach freudianism uh, yeah death drive and uh and whatnot, that has an intuitive idiott ego has an intuitive uh, appeal to it uh, um particularly when if you put it in the German and not the English weird translation um, but uh you start talking about Oedipus and Electra complexes, and people start looking at you like you're crazy um, whereas there's some weird sh- I, I, weird shit in young as a side know. note, the first cyclonic literature I ever read and I read it in high school, was young. And it was because, okay, it was everywhere in the 90s. I mean, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, Jungian archetypes uh, are a lot of people's first introduction to anything like semiotics um, and universal symbols and symbol parallels and, and how symbols work in the brain. And Yeah, it's natural, and it's natural enough that it's the only form of psychoanalysis that in the United States is taught in high school. Hmm. It's taught in literature class. It's not, but like we always teach the monometh and recurrent symbols, and sometimes we'll even be explicit and say they come out of Jungian psychology. Uh, This is contested science, but it's generally accepted in cultural criticism. And Marxists don't touch it. Uh, Marxists love Lacan, which is at minimum the most difficult form of psychoanalysis to deal with. Um, uh, And, you know, I think deliberately so, and I kind of hate it, but I have softened on certain Lacanian lectures as actually being useful. Um, But that's neither here nor there. Um, And I think it's important that if we are going to maintain things like Lacan, um, that we engage with with people like Young, um, because one thing I will tell you is is Jordan Peterson's a bad Youngian, like he's actually oh, yeah. a, like he's a bad Christian, he's a bad Jungian, he's not even a good conservative, like, and I find that. That what I found I I went to this conference on Jordan Peterson and I I spoke at it and what I found frustrating is all the critiques of him were like based off of leftist assumptions and I was like, no, the way you should approach him is you should actually dig into Young, you should actually dig into like orthodox Christianity, and then point out from there how it's bullshit. Then we can deal with the leftist assumptions and bring that in, but. You know if you see all that ground it makes it look like we're talking from a space where he represents one thing and we're from another planet um and we're from planet post neo marxism um and he's from planet pragmatist or whatever um who likes lobsters or whatever <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, The
1: whole um, the whole thing should collapse on itself, and it's still wildly successful, um, no, which but... tells us something about the concepts that he uses and the power. Yeah. I so mean... yeah, and
0: so I think we need to talk. Like, I would love for someone to take like to take up a and and to try to do it in, with scientific validity, not just as cultural criticism, but um, like to talk about like the capitalist mono myths and where they show up, and how we could find them. Um, And yes, people would then critique that, and point out how they're not universally applicable. And that's great! Yeah. Like, there's such a thing as a productive failure, which for me, with Young, is undoubtedly true, because there are some fundamental assumptions in Young that just don't hold, but there's a reason, like, yeah, he's more popular. He run, He actually won the continued relevance. Yes, we all talk about Freud, but Freud, and yes, Freud is kind of taught in high school, but he's always taught, as like, well, there is this guy Freud. He realized that sex was important. Um, he came up with the idea of the unconscious. Here's some weird shitty thought that we no longer believe by. Like, that's the way if you encounter him in high school. Which you probably don't, but if you do, you encounter him in a history of psychology class, and that's the way he's taught. Um, whereas, if you encounter Young, you encounter him uh, in a cultural studies or or a high school English class as a as a way to understand literature and narrative structure. Um, and yeah, he cl- clearly won on that. Like, there's no there's no Freudian monomyth. Like, um, anyway. That's a great point, actually. Thank you. That's a different rant, but it's a good rant. Um, I also think one thing you and I, weirdly, we've been talking about math. uh, We also take spiritual uh, stuff seriously, not because I believe in its metaphysical reality. I I, I don't uh, in most cases. Um, But because I think you do have to understand the way a lot of the world has thought, and a lot of the way modern math and logic developed was out of different kinds of theologies, and if you don't understand that, then you can't even really talk about the history of the development of human thought. Um, Yeah.
1: And um, I mean, we didn't get hugely into this, but um, I actually um, read up a lot on um, the history of um, mysticism um, within physics and mathematics, particularly in the last two centuries. And it's really interesting. It's such a great amount of people and and really, really qualified people um, had kind of mystical inclinations and even advocated for them as a kind of way to understand um, physical reality. Like Arthur Eddington, Um, wrote a great defense of mysticism in his book on the nature of the physical World*. He really went into it and he really explained his reasoning. And like, that's, that's a really first grade physicist. Like he's one of the three um, people of, of whom it is um, often said that um, they um, understood relativity theory at that point in time. Um, And yeah, it's um, so many mathematicians like, um, like, way up their mathematicians, among the best ever. Like Grotendieck um, was very much into mysticism, particularly toward the end of his life, and it wasn't a particularly good idea for him. But um, at the same time, um, there was definitely something there, and there is something that, um, I don't know, like highly, highly intelligent and highly unusual thinking, um, or highly intelligent and highly unusual thinkers, I think, are um, often particularly inclined towards um, these kinds of thoughts. For um some reason. I mean it's kind of a cliche that like um genius and insanity are close to each other. But um if you look at like mathematicians of the last century, um but even before that, like um Newton and stuff, it's kind of true. Um, it's well, really interesting.
0: I, I used to argue in the new atheist days, I used to point out to people that like, okay, psychologists and biologists are likely to be atheists uh mathematicians and um physicists can go either way um and, but a lot of the important ones actually are if not religious, highly weird um yeah. like um and i I think at least even if you're gonna like talk about things in a materialistic framework, which I think actually as good marxists we we need to do at least methodologically, if not ontologically um we we do have to admit that there's something going on there that is highly productive even if it's mistaken towards human thought and to just be like well religious thinking is bad um isn't going to get you very far um and it definitely brackets out like the development of like a shit ton of math physics and and even biology, like, uh, so it's, you know, it may be insufficient, um, which I think it definitely is. I mean, um, but it's important, which is why I'm a bit, a, I'm a big advocate of the Marxist should not all of us, because, you know, if you take everything I advocate Marxist should do, the average Marxist should have 25 PhDs and also be a working class person. um, which of course is ridiculous, but some of us should take up the study of religion. Some of us should take up the study of math and take it up seriously and engage with the literature as it exists now, not just come in when when we're going to try to prove whatever Trotsky said in 1914. Correct. Um, And, and I think that's an important thing. And I think it's definitely true of math. And if you are getting into math, I remember I read a – this was before I was really into math, but I read a David Foster Wallace book on the history of of infinities and went into mysticism and insanity come up a lot. <laughs> um, it's like – <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean just over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: and I mean um, the thought about the infinite was, of course, a central tenet of um, religious practice, particularly within Christianity, and a justification for like the divine nature of um, the human. Which I'm I'm against that because um, I don't think that we are any more or less divine than, for instance, animals, or um, probably than thinking machines if they ever exist. But um, it, it was a way that people um thought about these things, and it is it is a kind of source of confound confo, confo- confu- confoundation um that um we can actually as like finite beings grasp infinite concepts at least um at least on a maybe superficial level compared to the actual infinite but i mean it is weird yeah yeah I mean,
0: the moment that you start positing. I mean, and I think I even realized this in middle school, but I didn't really think about it a lot until very recently. When you start dealing with the idea of like, well, there's an infinite number of infinities between one set of numbers and another set of numbers, but if one set of numbers is larger than the other, theoretically, there's more infinite infinities between. Boom! <laughs> um, like that, like that itself. It introduces two things: either you're going to become a skeptic of the idea of knowledge at all, or you're going to have to deal with the fact that there are conce- that there are concepts that we that our immediate practical inclinations uh, are just going to disabuse, um, and thus we should probably take them seriously. And that's going to look a lot like a lot of mystical traditions and stuff. And I also think there is something about the way the human mind works that reproduces these things over and over again. Otherwise they would not exist. Yeah. Um, Because they develop like, like you start, like when you start doing comparative stuff between like Buddhist, uh, mythical traditions and, and theological, uh, well, they're not theological for them as ontological cosmological and like Christian Judeo Christian Islamic ones, you start seeing, that there's convergent developments and they're not, they really aren't traceable to cultural exposure in the case of like Shin Buddhism in Japan in the 12th century and Islamicate uh, Platonism in, um, in say North Africa. There's no, there's no, there's not a direct line. Even the Mongols don't explain like cross-cultural contamination there. So um, either there, you know, either these things develop because of certain logical deductions that are made in a system and it would have been made in any system. Um, or you have a hard time explaining what's going on. Um, you know, or you just have to like, well uh, it was statistically lucky. Right. Yeah. You know, those are your options really.
1: Yeah. Um, but there's definitely weirdly prescient stuff in, all over the world, like um, Buddhism with, um, with the ideas of many worlds. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's really similar to um, it's really similar to some physical theories or um, like the Greek um, idea that um, like um, the whole universe or the whole world um, is just falling all the time. (laughs) Um, And that explains um, that explains um, why nature works the way it works. Well, I mean, this is a very simple model, but some, um, some um, of the current um, physical models are like, well, the universe is, is expanding all the time. Um, I mean, it's not that dissimilar. Um,
0: yeah, it's so always just it's... one directional. Expanding is falling in every direction. So, like, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, I do remember, uh, you know, all the cosmological debates about, um, eternalism, and then looking at math, and then looking at rev shifts, and then being like, oh, well, there's a lot. There's a lot to going on here that actually we somehow intuitively in theological and cosmological systems that we now have physical evidences practical for, and some of it does blow your mind, like the the whole, you know, you can't ex- the the difficulty in explaining quantum and non quantum mechanics when you think about the fact that at one point the universe uh, by by dint of definition only existed at a quantum level um like that that yeah. you know, that that kind of stuff is the stuff that's like doesn't keep me up at night but it's like you do get like oh there really is wonder in science and math and it's really interesting and and fascinating um and we should get people caring about it again um yeah. on you and- know particularly on the left
1: yeah, and this is also something that um, kind of annoys me um, with um, some people on the left that they often they often um, their mental conception is often one of like um, um, matter and of um, physics as it was in like the um, 18th century or something. Where, oh, um, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah they're like, basically like,
0: Newtonians at best.
1: Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they are and so um it, um it appears a lot more um gross to them than it than it actually is. It's um mm. it is there is truly um there is truly some um not magical in the sense of um I don't know I don't even know what magic is but um but there's that is word is much harder wondrous. to define.
0: Hmm? Uh magic is a word believe it that like I was listening to the secret history of esotericism, which is actually which seems like it's a a podcast about philosophy. I mean, about, excuse me, it seems like it's a podcast about about magic and it is, but it's more of a podcast about philosophy. But the thing that they say is like, no one actually has a functional definition of magic. Like like, It's just like, there's always some kind of weird, like, uh, okay, well, how is magic different than religious belief? Well, the only actual historical thing in the ancient world is magic was forbidden religious practices that's what it meant like um uh what is magical thinking well thinking that doesn't fall within the lens of logic except it does often have a logic it's just not a it's, it's a different causal logic of maybe one that conflates categories and then you're like, well, how's that different than other kinds of thinking um which is not to say that people should go out and do magic that's not my point my point is. That these categories are actually more difficult than they seem um and uh you know, as people have pointed out and and often charlatans have abused um it's impossible to separate the development of chemistry from alchemy and and stuff like that like um and alchemy also was not just parlor magic, it also had a lot of moral philosophy tied into it because that's the way people um and you know the, the late middle age of thought um but and it's not one of the things that i always point out it's not as far into our thinking as we'd like to pretend it is so oh no um
1: and it again it mm-hmm. can be um it can be kind of useful like I think the same thing that um makes us think magically is the same thing that makes a makes us like that really fastens up our thinking in that we just jump between like topics and that we, that we start looking at, um, uh, start looking at the big picture in a sense and, um, kind of forget about the details for a second that can be highly useful. Um, I mean, it's similar to what happens with, um, with psychedelics, you know, like, um, I don't know if you know this, but, um, there was an experiment in, I think the sixties where they gave a bunch of scientists psychedelics and, um, they often, um, and they told them that they should um, kind of think about the theories and they often made a um, remarkable um, progress um, in, in spite of the fact that the thinking um, is kind of disturbed because they were high, you know?
0: That's that's interesting.
1: All right. Well, thank you,
0: Alex, for coming on. Um, and we will see you again. Uh, is there anything you'd like to plug before you leave?
1: Um. I was um, thinking, and um, if you want, you can um, cut that part. Um, but I was thinking that I would start um, a reading group on your Discord um, um, with a category theory book that is precisely for um, non mathematicians who are interested in category theory. And we could read, like, um, I don't know, um, we'll see how fast we can go. Um, and I could, like, um, I could clear up is- misconceptions or whatever. Um, so if any of your people are of course, some people are on Discord. Um, they can look this up in the next few days or something.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, I, I, I'm gonna keep that in because I, I like the I like the idea of um, so so people who don't know my Discord has a has a uh, an open policy for for reading groups. Um, and if the, yes, the Discord goes to patrons first. But if you ask me nicely, um, I'll let you into the Discord just for asking me. Um, and we've had different kinds of reading groups. We've had a cybernetic theory reading group, we've had a um capital volume one and two reading group. Um, I promised that I wouldn't do another capital reading group, so that's not done by other people. Uh, but the idea of my Discord is that we set up uh skill sharing communities and 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 stuff out of interest. Um And so if you're interested, you in, like I said, if you're not a patron, you can just send me a message on uh, Twitter or you can, my email is actually attached to the YouTube channel. um, And I will send you that link. Um, All patrons get it. So um, thank you so much, Alex. And I hope you do that. Um, And I at least am going to read that book once you say what it is. All right. Uh, Have a good evening. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.